0: Welcome to the Virtual Expats Podcast. In the podcast, we interview expats, or former expats, on how changing locations changed what they did online. In the podcast episode, we're interviewing documentarian Hao Wu on Valentine's Day this year. My husband and I went to the Shanghai Foreign Correspondents Club screening of People's Republic of Desire, one of Hao's most recent projects. Yes, we really are that romantic. Also at the event was Shannon Martin, who works for Podbean, and also is our local host for the podcast Brunch Club. We all talked incessantly for the next few days after this screening and that's when we decided that Shannon and I needed to interview Hao and he was kind enough to agree to this interview. Hao has a very interesting background. He's lived both in China and in the US and is currently living in New York City and he calls himself binational and I think as you listen to his geographical trajectory during the interview you'll agree that binational seems to be a very very fair label for how he splits up his time between the two places. Howe's career is equally as interesting. He started out in the tech field working for a number of high profile companies, including but not limited to Alibaba here in China. The People's Republic of a Desire is a documentary following two live streamers in the ups and downs of their live streaming experiences. Specifically, these two live streamers are on the YY platform in China, and there's a, a large focus on the YY yearly competition. This is a slightly different type of interview. We are talking about Howe's geographical trajectory. And his own online experience and how they affect each other. But we also talked about his documentary, People's Republic of Desire. One final note on how How has another project coming out on May 3rd in just a few days from now. And it will come out on Netflix. It's called All in My Family. And it is about living one's true identity in the face of a traditional family values. And I'll have a link in the show notes for the trailer for that. All right. So without further ado, let's get to the conversation between Shannon, How, and myself. Thank you so much much how and Shannon for joining us on Virtual Expat's podcast.
1: Glad to be here.
0: Glad to be here too. This is the first time we're doing two interviewers with one interviewee on the Virtual Expat podcast. So let's do a quick round. We'll do the interviewers first. Hi, I'm Stephanie, a long-term serial expat and someone who's curious about what our geographic movement does to our online presence and activities.
2: Hi, I'm Shannon. I currently live in Shanghai, China. I've been here almost seven years, uh, originally from the U.S. and have lived in a couple of on a couple of different continents, so love cross-cultural stuff and this podcast, and very interested, of course, in China and things going on here, so I'm um, very interested in this uh, interview. And I work in the podcasting industry. I work for Podbean, so love all things podcasting as well.
0: And Shannon is also our local host for the Podcast Brunch Club. I have to plug them every chance I get because they're wonderful. <laughs> and our special guest today is Hao Wu. Hao?
1: Hi, uh, this is Hao. Um, I'm a documentary filmmaker, based in. In New York I'm originally from China and strangely i even though I live in New York I still primarily focus on China stories in my mm-hmm. documentary films
0: we generally map out in expat. And we use that term very, very loosely. Basically, anybody who lives outside their home country or passport country, whatever you want to call it. And we map out uh, their geographical movement, in this case, China to the US and back and forth and back and forth, and what that does to their online presence. So, with that, the first question As a binational, how, you spent a lot of time in both China and the US. Can you briefly give our listeners a chronological snapshot of when and how long you were in, in each place?
1: Okay, so I'm in my 40s. I moved to the U.S. when I was 20 for graduate school. And then after graduate school, I went to another graduate school. And uh, after that, I worked in Silicon Valley for many years. And then after that, I moved back to China. I worked for companies like Alibaba, Yahoo China, and TripAdvisor in China. And in uh, the end of 2011, I quit my tech career to focus on documentary filmmaking full time. So before then, I was dabbling in documentary filmmaking as a part-time hobby. But starting end of 2011, I began to do this full-time until now.
2: That's wonderful. As a follow-up question to that, you obviously have been in the tech space a long time. So obviously the internet has been a big part of your life uh, yep. for quite some time. Do you remember at what age the internet became an integral part of your daily life and was that when you were based in the U.S. or China? You know,
1: when I first moved to the U.S., there was something called email. Mm -hmm. So that was so fascinating to us. You know, my fellow friends coming all the way from China, we were all very poor back in the 1990s. We could afford to call each other every week. So we sent each other emails. That was very fascinating, very early stage. You had to use the Unix prompt to send a Mm -hmm. Unix command to send out emails. Um, So even back then, because I was in academia, email was always a big part of the uh, communication.
0: And I always have to ask people when they talk about um, email or doing things online pre-2000, what color was the screen when you were using uh, Unix for email? Was it orange, green, or another color?
1: I think the screen was always black. It's the letters. (laughs) Ah, okay. (laughs) Those were green. Just remember uh, the yeah. matrix it's the it's the uh the little things that are green not the not the background the background uh, is always black
0: oh okay I okay uh, yeah yeah at university in the late 90s my um our screens were i want to say they green? were orange and then the text was black it was really hard to work with i'm really glad that, <laughs> that the world wide web developed when it did <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Shannon, how about you? Your first uh, online or email experience, was it on like a what we would consider like a normal looking screen or a different color?
2: Um, I, th- I, I remember what Hal was talking about, about the black with green, um, mm-hmm. but I think it was normal. I was doing sort of chat rooms in university mm-hmm. and then email, but email was, I'm trying to remember what it was at that time. It definitely wasn't Gmail. I guess mm-hmm. that was like AOL probably, maybe mm-hmm. the first one. And then university, same same as a lot of people. I think we a lot of us got online first you know, through through universities, yeah. some way or like a tech job, kind of before it hit the general public. So, all three of us, I think, were in the early days. Of
0: the yeah. the oh. <laughs> 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 Too funny. Well, how or what inspired you to switch over in 2011 to switch over to doing documentaries? Was there anything specifically that inspired you to do that?
1: Uh, it wasn't. I didn't switch um, in one go. Um, mm. When I moved back to China in 2004. I actually took a a year and year and a half break from my tech career to mm-hmm. started doing writing screenplays and doing documentary films. And then after a while, after I burned through my savings, I went back to the tech um, you know, in tech industry sure. to make some money again. So anyway, so it's a back and forth, back and forth a couple of times. I had always been interested in in the storytelling Uh, ever since i was growing up in china in like middle school and high school um, Mm -hmm. but never got a chance to so it's just kind of random because what sometimes when we make choices in life it's not because we consciously choose to do this versus that for example before i moved back to china i spent Mm -hmm. two years in la and i met many filmmaker friends and everybody was writing a screenplay and at that time, I thought, <laughs> I screenplay too. that's how I got into this. But then I realized it was so hard to make, to actually write a screenplay, get it, getting the screenplay produced, uh, and then I just picked up the camera and started filming. So that was 2004, 2005. And then I went back to tech for a number of years mm-hmm. and quit into the end of 2011.
0: Was there anything you were doing online in China before you moved at 20 years old to the U.S.?
1: No, uh, there wasn't anything. On, there wasn't internet. Wait, mm-hmm. I moved to the US when I was 1992. Mm-hmm. I don't uh. think the internet oh, yeah, went to really... China in 1997, 1998, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't any internet back okay. then.
0: Now, would you describe yourself more as a consumer of internet content, a creator of internet content, or both equally?
1: I think it's more. I'm more a consumer of internet content versus a producer mm-hmm. of internet content. Uh, obviously, all my films can be found online, but uh, my film hasn't. Films haven't become uh, so like hits, right? Online hits. So mm-hmm. not as many people are watching it uh, and leaving me comments for me to communicate with them. Versus like I consume a lot of content on Netflix, HBO Go, and Hulu, for example, and YouTube obviously.
2: I'm curious, do you now having the documentary career and having some um, films that have gotten a lot of attention, um, maybe in more traditional media, has that changed how you kind of interact? You know, do you feel like you're more of a, I don't know if you want to call it a personality or like a brand online? And do you even have help? Do you have people to help with that at all? Or is that, do you still just do the interaction yourself, like on Twitter or Weibo or wherever you are online?
1: Yeah. I mean, I still primarily, um do everything myself. I don't have anybody help. I'm not a personality. I'm not a brand, for sure. The first thing is that I make foreign language films and try to distribute them in the U.S. Mm -hmm. I think as you're probably aware of, in the U.S., not as many people really are that interested in foreign language content, Mm period, right? Unless you become, um, you know, Oscar winner, best foreign films Mm -hmm. uh, at, at that level. So, you know, I don't have a lot of followers on social media, and I honestly I haven't been that proactive uh, in kind of establish my fan base on online because I mean during the process of making People's Republic a desire mm-hmm. for a while I actually thought about quitting the uh, quitting Facebook quitting Twitter because I would just become so wary of the uh, dependency mm-hmm. on the, especially I was, you know I was following some internet celebrities in China's live streaming world and they were really not. Very happy with our lives, but then I kind of what can me on still on social media is because I'm an independent filmmaker. I have a film I have to promote, so I kind of have to be on on <laughs> <after laughs>
2: Facebook. <I> right. <laughs> yeah. You're yeah. kind of forced into it. I imagine you probably, depending on what you're doing, use different languages online. What languages do you use online? What like which times Hi. you're using Chinese versus English on online?
1: Uh, Yeah, it's very interesting because right now I travel quite often back to China Uh, for some strange reason. As soon as I go back to China, my internet consumption behavior changes. For example, uh, obviously I use WeChat all the time, right? Uh, To communicate with friends in China, family in China. But in terms of the kind of news app I access, uh, you know, I read and uh, the kind of video app I use, you know, when I'm in China, I'm more like a typical Chinese internet consumer, I use ToTao, I use Tencent Video, right? And uh, I I I uh, you know and, and I also check out Tieba every once in a while. Well. And obviously it's still bad. But when I'm in the US, I, I you know, I use the New York Times, I use BuzzFeed, I you know, it's complete, almost like there's a parallel universe. Mm-hmm. I have to whenever I go to a different country, I just switch, switch to the other universe on.
0: What, why do you think that is uh, yeah that's
1: interesting I, I don't have a clear answer for that I think mm-hmm. partly it's definitely because the uh, great firewall mm-hmm. uh, once I'm in China I don't have easy access to Twitter Facebook mm-hmm. YouTube and Netflix right mm-hmm. that's part of the reason but, but I, I don't think the online environment mm-hmm. really exists in isolation from the real world per right. se right. Uh, whenever right. I go to China just because you know you talk to the cab driver or you talk, you meet, meet up with some friends from Mm -hmm. childhood and what people are talking about you kind of want to go do some research online to be able to grasp Mm -hmm. uh, what's happening in China uh, in the real world so that's why depends on where I travel to I try to switch both my real world experience as Mm -hmm. well as my online Mm -hmm. immersion Mm -hmm. to fit where I am.
0: Right, right, right. Do you feel like your online and offline lives are equally balanced in both places?
1: How do you define balanced?
0: Huh? Um, <laughs> that one doesn't overtake the other.
1: <laughs> uh, I, That's I a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I, I honestly think I spend way too much time on, on my phone. But I, my only excuse is that I spend a lot of time editing my film, uh, you know, with on editing. Your phone. No, no, not on my phone, just oh. like in general right. when I'm editing there's always like sometimes I have to wait one or two minutes sure. for for the render to complete. <laughs> so what can I do with that one, one to two minutes? I, I go on so the computer on my phone to check out what's happening uh, among my friends.
0: Yes. <laughs> I use the same excuse when I edit podcasts. Yeah. Like, yeah. When I reached out to you, I mentioned that Shannon and I had both seen the live screening of the People's Republic of Desire a couple of months ago in, Sha- in Shanghai. And we both, we both left with like tons of questions. And for days after, we're going back and forth on WeChat to each other, like going, what about this? What about this? What about this? And that's the whole... The whole reason why we reached out and we really appreciate you doing this interview so let's let's switch over from how the virtual person to how the documentarian (laughs) (laughs) and we'll probably be your back and forth as we do because there's no distinct you know dividing point but before we but before we do that have you ever live streamed yourself
1: no i think the only time i was on live stream was uh when I was filming Big Lee, he liked to brag to his fans that mm-hmm. uh, CCTV is making a film about him. Mm-hmm. He, he would you know, lie to his fans that I'm, I'm a reporter from CCTV. Ah. And he would turn the webcam mm-hmm. at me, so oh. I will appear in front of his fans, mm-hmm. live fans. But I never live to myself.
0: Would you ever?
1: I don't think so. I'm more like a behind-the-camera kind of guy. Mm-hmm. Uh, if, anybody, if anything, I, I could become the you know, the evil big brother behind the scenes. <laughs> I don't want to be on camera. I don't want, you know, I don't want to be the one performing. Right. I kind of like to control things. And I just feel like a lot of times when I'm in front of a camera, I cannot lose control.
2: Yeah, I'm curious with all of the different activity. There's so much going on online uh, on the Chinese internet. Uh, why did you decide to focus on live streaming specifically?
1: I started making this film in 2014. So that was before live streaming really took off. Uh, very few people in uh, first-tier cities have heard of live streaming. And what intrigued me back then uh, was because I had always wanted to make a film about the rich people in China. Uh, but the reality is that very few rich people were want to be on camera, right? Want to be interviewed, be followed <laughs> around by a camera. But then somebody was mentioning about this virtual live streaming world where the rich Tu and the poor Diao Si, they all party together. So that really intrigued me. And uh, as soon as uh, I did some research and found out that the Tu the rich patrons, they really spent tons of money mm-hmm. just like to show off virtually and anonymously that to me is just like so fascinating. That that to me in many ways represents what's happening in China today, in in my you know, humble opinion. So that kind of like got me going. So I want to find out more about this world. For a while I thought live streaming was just a fad. So I was rushing to finish the film. I was like, you know, I hope that live streaming is still there by the time I finish this film. So it kind of lucky for me that live streaming really exploded back back in 2016. Uh, even though right now it's not as trendy as before, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that's also because it has become so mainstream in China.
0: Has anything replaced it in popularity?
1: Yeah, definitely short video, right? TikTok.
0: Oh, right. TikTok. Yeah. TikTok. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. These are what everybody's talking about world- worldwide now.
0: Is there a monetary component to that? I haven't checked that out too much yet.
1: Uh, I think they're still trying to figure out how to monetize. Mm. I mean, with the, with yeah. the TikTok and the quest of the short video, I think they're still trying to figure out whether their business model can be supported just by traditional sponsorship and advertising. i trying to figure that thing out.
2: Yeah, Why? it's interesting because I, I was talking to a friend about, a, a very young friend in China about YY and some of the live streaming. And she was like, eh, you know, and she mentioned, of course, the short videos and TikTok. And then I started at, delving into that a little bit with her about how they make money. And she said a lot of it, it seems a lot of it too, is like the idea of being discovered to lead to something else. Mm-hmm. So I guess like every other form of, you know, online. So someone hears you doing us. A lot of people go on there and do songs and that kind of stuff, and then they get the chance to have more fans and get asked to perform somewhere. So it's ever-evolving, I guess.
1: Yeah, so right now, for short video, the two top apps, uh, TikTok and Quaisho. I know Quaisho is trying to encourage uh, the KRLs on its platform to start doing live streaming because Uh live streaming has a clearly defined business model. And the live, you know, whoever does the live streaming on Kaiso can make a lot of money, and the platform can take a huge cut. But with the other sponsorships, advertising, uh, they, they they can still make money, but it's not going to be as fast, as right. and or as lucrative as live streaming.
0: I'm still fairly new to all of this terminology. Is KRL the same thing as influencer, or are they different?
1: I think so. I mean, KRL is some a term that people in asia use a lot right mm. people in the us yeah. do. people in the us use that term. okay
2: okay, okay. it's like key, key opinion key, key opinion, opinion leader, leader. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah okay you hear it, yeah. in,
2: you hear it in, in business a lot like branding like if you want someone to talk about your product i think right. but yeah I, I hear it mainly in asia i don't hear i hear influencer in the us Okay. <laughs> <Yep. laughs>
0: well how this this rich talking to the poor in live streaming what is that the only place one of the few places that, that has happened in China, and why is it so important? It's not necessarily uh,
1: important. I think it's just fascinating to me because I really want to do a story about the, uh, the class divide in society, but I want to do it in a fun way rather than in a heavy handed way of uh, social commentary. It fascinated me is that when the rich and poor get together, what's going to happen? Because in <laughs> real life, they will never mingle, right? Mm. You will never be able to observe it, but uh, online they together.
0: I just wonder about the like the the rich and the poor. They talk to each other. Are they talking? Because it looks like a lot of like money going in different direction. Well, mostly in one direction. But as, as far as the like talking part of it, is that the offline component, like what the what the host might when they might meet with the um with the two house afterwards or whatnot, is that. The talking part of it.
1: Even in the live streaming chat room, they talk to each other. Mm-hmm. But mostly, it's uh, it's the fans will type like, "I admire you. You're mm-hmm. so awesome." Okay. Right, and right, right The reach to how get a huge ego satisfaction. But they can also add each other mm-hmm. privately on YY. Mm-hmm. They can even exchange WeChat contacts with each other, they can, WeChat, there are so many WeChat groups, right? I mean, mm-hmm. that's how a rich patron can start his or her own WeChat groups, have a huge following. They can have a huge social media following in that way. Mm-hmm. And then in those WeChat rooms, I think there's more definitely back and forth interaction. But overall, it's about the poor adore the rich, even then red envelopes, every once in a while on WeChat. Mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> oh, wow. So not just the host has WeChat groups, but the patrons themselves have WeChat groups where they talk to the people watching the hosts also?
1: Primarily, it's the, uh, the, the host WeChat groups mm-hmm. where the two will be super active, right? Mm-hmm. They are almost like the admin level control. And then other, you know, diehard fans will be there as well. Um, but sometimes the, the, the two how the rich patrons, they can start their own WeChat groups. Sorry, it's complicated. They can start their own groups on YY. Yeah. yeah. And also they can move the group to WeChat or some other social media platform as well. Oh, because so to it to spend a lot of money, you become a celebrity right. in that space.
0: Right. So I love the the triangle that that Shenman uh, talks about during the documentary where she shows the host at the top, basically just using English terms, the loser on one side, the Patreon on the other side. So that, that's, those are the three things. And then eventually she talks about the agencies that yeah. start to, to overtake them in the middle. And the interactions between all four of those populations is so fascinating.
1: Yep, that's, uh, that's why live streaming is successful, because live streaming, mm-hmm. uh, the platforms, they, they found a way to really design features that can appeal to the different roles, needs, how to satisfy their needs online. But also they designed this kind of revenue flow that everybody can take a cut uh, in the revenue f- uh, flow, and uh, everybody has an incentive to in- invest in the host's future income or profitability. Mm-hmm. So that's how live streaming has increasingly become a money game.
0: Well, since we're talking about money in this documentary... No, I'm just kidding. I'm not asking you for money. I do have a support page on stephfuccio.weebly.com, but That's not what this announcement is for. What I want instead of money, believe it or not, are more listeners, more people just like you who are interested in this conversation that we're having about people moving around geographically and what that does to their online selves. Do they change their online personas when they change countries? I don't know. Do you know? How did they change it? Let's investigate that some more. And buy some more listeners. Listeners like you. So please do send virtual expats in any way, shape, or form. Email, Twitter, Facebook. Mm, where else? Tumblr. Snapchat? Is that still around? Uh, if you're in China, WeChat, Weibo. Ah, and I'm losing my track of social media apps. You get the idea. Please do share virtual expats. In just a word form, picture form, sound form. Send a voice message to a friend. Say, you have to listen to Virtual Expat. That would be fantastic. Whatever you do, however you do it, I appreciate you. Yes, you. And you. And you. And you. Thank you so much. Let's get back to
2: how. After the documentary, I think mm. a lot of people were asking about, oh, China, this is so interesting, what's happening in China, and kind of really pointing out the very China ness of this. And you were mm. saying, well, actually, a lot of these similar things happen in the U.S. or, mm. you know, quote unquote Western countries. So that there's such diversity and difference within China. But a lot mm. of times, I guess, people are sort of pitting, like, oh, China's so different.
1: Yeah, yeah uh, that's true. That's true. I mean, even when I was uh, trying to upgrade a funding support. For PBS, mm. PBS has this concern as well. It's like, is this film trying to kind of give uh, the U.S. audience the same stereotypical views about China again? But I, I think, I think, I think for me, any piece of great art will tell a very particular story. Hopefully, that particular story will also be able to convey something more—not universal—is the wrong word. It's like more representative of what's really happening in the society, right? So. If you look at People's Republic Desire, the group of people that's been portrayed in the film, the host, the loser fans, as well as the rich patrons, they by no means represent the entire society of China uh, because live streaming as compared to short video or even Weibo or WeChat, live streaming's consumption in China is uh, comparatively you know, dominated by people with lower education Mm-hmm. Uh, people who really have no hope uh, in terms of advancing their economic well-being and social status in the current Chinese society. So in that way, live streaming is not representative of what's happening in China. But on the other hand, this intense focus on money equating success and happiness with money, and the people who have money want, wanting to show off, and mm-hmm. the poor wanting to become those rich people. Mm-hmm. So in some way, this is kind of what's happening in China today as China going through this huge economic change. So, yeah, I, I mean, that's why I said and doing one of the q as is that I don't think this film represents China, but hopefully it can be indicative of what's happening in China to some degree.
0: So it's almost a mirror image, kind of, of what's happening in real life China.
1: No, I think it's more extreme image. Sure, it's yeah. extreme image, but the, 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 even though it's extreme, mm-hmm. it contains certain kernels or two.
2: Well, that sounds like the internet. <laughs> <laughs> yes yeah. Well another thing you had mentioned in another interview and I think we also heard a little discussion of in in the talk was that the YY in particular the live streaming platform that was featured in People's Republic of Desire uh was also in not being a complete reflection of society it was much more male based there were a lot more men viewers and it start because it started as i guess related to gaming a gaming platform i don't know if you know if that's still true or if it's if if that kind of covers if that's true for live streaming in general and how you think maybe that impacts you know what we see in the film and how it relates to the overall society
1: i think yy is Arguably, probably, I don't have access to all the financials over the, the different live streaming platforms in China. But I still think YY is the most profitable live streaming platform in China. And mm-hmm. uh, even though, because its origin as a voice tool for online gamers, uh, so a lot of YY's uh, early fan base was migrated over from those gamers, tend to be more male and uh, lower income. But, but I think in some ways, Huawei is still representative of the live streaming world in China because YY was the first one that clearly established a business model to make live streaming platforms profitable. So all the latecomers, they're all trying to replicate what YY did well, mm-hmm. which yeah. is trying to attract hosts and then trying to get them to attract you know, the big patrons in the U.S., they're called whales. And the patrons who spend a lot of money online. The newer live streaming platform, they just try to replicate what YY does. So to mm-hmm. some degrees, yes, they, they are just become clones of YY, even though each one has slightly different you know, user demographics. And the revenue split or the, how they design their game rules are slightly different. But mm-hmm. overall, they're very similar.
0: One of the most interesting parts of People's Republic of Desire for me was watching the fans like Yong and their urban alienation and how they found like a comfort space or a, a home or what have you in uh, Big Lee's uh, live streams and 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 the community they found of other uh, of other viewers who also liked watching him and they felt like they were rooting for him and all of that kind of stuff. I couldn't help but think, as someone who analyzes the expat bubble and and adjustment periods when people move outside their home country, which feels very similar when you move from a very different city to a very different city in in the same country. I can't help but wonder, did you hear of any of them stop, that they stopped watching the live streams once they actually acclimated and felt more comfortable in their physical place?
1: Hmm. During the time I was filming, I was, in terms of the migrant workers whom I followed, some of them really got into watching Mm -hmm. live streaming. Uh, A couple of them watch it just for fun every once in a while during the annual competition when Mm -hmm. there was a lot of money being thrown around. But these these are the type who never really got into live streaming. I actually haven't experienced, haven't witnessed anybody quitting watching live streaming altogether. Mm -hmm. I kept on asking Yong, I said, when are you going to quit watching live streaming? Uh, he said whenever Big Lee stops performing. But uh, Big Lee is still there making his money, so Young uh, is still watching him. But, but once again, for my film, because in my film, I really focus on two very successful live streamers right. as well as their diehard uh, fans, right? Mm-hmm. So these are not the average fans who just come in once a week, once a month to watch someone Sing or Big Lee t- telling dirty jokes. These These are the ones who spend every evening with their mm-hmm. idols so right. for mm-hmm. them to really quit um, you know must be something majorly change in their life personal life for example if they get married or if they have a girlfriend right. they don't have time to do to watch live streaming anymore in the evenings
0: right mm-hmm. i wondered as i was watching it why young didn't just take his phone and start live streaming himself he seemed like a very personable, attractive young man. And I kept thinking, just go do it. You can make more than 400 a month. Go do it. <laughs> Did he ever talk about the desire to be on the live stream?
1: Uh, we talk about it, but he, he, he knows. He knew back then that he, he didn't have what it takes to become a live streamer.
0: Mm-hmm. Come on. I mean, yeah.
1: I find it difficult to talk. Like we, We've been talking for 30 minutes now. I find it very challenging for me to keep on talking, <laughs> even though I've been prompted with questions. Like for a live streamer, they have mm-hmm. to just like ad lib, right? Coming up with stuff to talk about for one to two hours straight. So that's.
0: Really okay. Yeah.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I wonder how how does the we saw in the film, the talent manager mm-hmm. and, the, you know, the whole setup, as you talked about financially, how do people end up getting into it? I mean, is it something they feel like they have a talent for and they try and then people are certain, you know, cultivated from there or how does it how does all that even begin?
1: So I think there are two kinds. I mean, in the early adopters, they, they kind of just fell into this. Uh, for example, mm-hmm. uh, Big Li and Shen Man, they were among that generation who used YY as mm-hmm. a voice tool to play online games. And then mm-hmm. as the tool evolved into live streaming, they were there. So they were the first group of people who started doing uh, live streaming and they became really successful. So later ones, who wanted to start doing live streaming, mostly because they want to make money. They heard that live streamers make so much money, so they wanted to try themselves. But, you know, because they were not cut out, necessarily cut out for that, live streaming is very competitive. And if you, you really have to have some kind of talent, and also you need to be able to engage with your fans in real time. So not everybody can do it. Even if you're a great singer, if you don't know how to interact with the fans, uh, the fans are going to leave you. So, yeah, it's really hard for newcomers to stay and grow their fan base and to become Mm -hmm. another top live streamers.
2: Yeah, it seems like people have this idea in a way that it's easy and, you know, this easy way to get rich. But also, as you talked about it, I'm thinking that's a very difficult uh, job. I mean, it, that is hard to have that. When you watched them doing it, it, it was, it's amazing to think, you know, and your film would show s- small segments, but to imagine them doing this for hours, that's not something everyone can do for sure.
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, that's why Big Lee, he used to, you know, like to talk a lot. But nowadays, after he finishes his shows, he doesn't. He, he doesn't want to talk. Like to talk to anybody. <laughs> he just wants to be quiet. Uh-huh. It's, it's kind of exhausted. Sure. Yeah, I get that. that makes sense. sense.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
2: So what what's the reaction been to the documentary? And um, has it varied depending on where you're, where it's being viewed, which country, or even city, or kind of the events that you've done some live talks?
1: Yeah, I mean, it depends on when I travel to film festival with this film, I think the the best response I received uh, were from cities where there are a large Chinese immigrant population or Chinese student population because these these are the ones who have heard of live streaming and uh, you know who knew something about it but didn't know a lot so when I watched my film the the film just resonated with them a lot. Mm-hmm. So I think for our non-Chinese audience, because live streaming is really not a mainstream internet phenomenon outside of China, or maybe Korea. So people like like the typical non-Chinese audience, they look at this, they they will, they will be shocked, but to them it's more like almost like an allegorical black mirror type of uh, mm-hmm. sci-fi story to them. It doesn't really resonate, right? So um, it's kind of unfortunate, This film couldn't be publicly screened in China because censorship reasons. But uh, of the limited numbers of uh, public screenings I did in China, the audience response was phenomenal in China.
0: And you mentioned yeah. this a little bit before, but but I want to attack it head on. Um, as you were making the documentary, did you find yourself using the internet and or social media differently? Because you mentioned you you were thinking about quitting Facebook, but it sounds like you didn't. But what what effect did it have on you?
1: I spent two years filming, mm-hmm. uh, following my characters, and then I spent a year and a half just editing. Mm-hmm. And uh, kind of uh, a few months into the editing process, I just realized this story is really a dystopian story. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, was, I, I keep on watching and rewatching the footage of my characters struggling to be happy, even though mm-hmm. so, they have made so much money and they're so popular online in China. So that kind of made me think of um, not wanting to be so dependent on social media mm-hmm. for affirmation myself. Because whenever we post something on social media, we post in order to um, communicate, to be recognized. Mm -hmm. So there's always this uh, uh, desire for other people to like your post or leave a comment to interact with you. Uh, So, but basically, as you know, as I spend more time making this film, I kind of wanted to get away from that kind of that desire of mine, wanting to be liked online. But in the end, as I mentioned before, as an independent filmmaker, mm-hmm. I kind of have to rely on social media to engage with my fans mm-hmm. and to get the word out there and to pr- continue to promote the film. It's a little ironic sometimes when I think about it. But then, you know, when I try to do, finish the Kickstarter campaign mm-hmm. for this film, there were really a lot of people who came out and supported me Uh, not only on Kickstarter campaign page, but also they tell their friends on social media. So I guess, you know, that comes back to whatever we want to criticize, we shouldn't just dump, you know, dump everything out because there's always a positive side as well. So because right now I feel like in the West, the media discussion about internet and social media Mm -hmm. has, has swung all the way to the other extreme Mm -hmm. as if social media is all bad, Mm -hmm. right? It's a, Uh, It's too, uh, it's very addictive. It's all echo chamber. Mm -hmm. But let's not forget, there's also some positive thing that has come with social media with the internet.
0: Exactly, exactly. And I find that as I'm interviewing people about their online existence and the, the chronological aspect of it and things. And it just, it's so amazing to me how many different good things that can come from it and how many, and almost equally, how many dangerous aspects of it can happen, but I, I I still lean towards the side of it's not the technology, it's something that we might have veered towards, even if it wasn't available, it's just making it possibly easier for us to do, maybe. Yeah, that's
1: definitely true. But also today, uh, there was news that WHO is uh, convening a meeting to discuss whether to make uh, online gaming Mm-hmm. Uh, addiction to online gaming—one of you know men- mental illnesses, right? So wow. these tools, once these tools becomes available, you know, it's like anything that can easily be abused by people who have a desperate need for it. So mm. we all need to watch out for that.
0: And that brings up a really good question: the the term desire. As I was watching the documentary, I was thinking, okay, is it the desire for money? Is it the desire for connection? And you were just saying it was the desire to um it sounds like what you just said was it was it is more of the desire of connection but did you want it to the desire to have many different hats throughout the documentary or did you have a specific desire in mind when you named it
1: i think i I stuck with that name i wasn't personally i wasn't very happy with that name that's kind Mm -hmm. of like too big and too heavy um but i stuck with it because it's really hard to summarize what the desire you know, these live streaming fans and mm-hmm. hosts are trying to get satisfied online. Um, I just kind of like, you know, the vagueness of that term mm-hmm. because it's like you said earlier, it's online is like a mirror, right? It basically reflects whatever desires we're looking to satisfy. I couldn't. F- get satisfied in real life and then we go online seek the the gratification for it so it could be recognition it could be Mm -hmm. relationship it could be money it could be fame Uh, there are all all kinds obviously because it's china uh, if you look at the film money plays a big you know it's a major component of this Mm -hmm. kind of desire being projected online. But I think there's still also like the, those poor fans, they, they just want to feel connected to their idols.
2: Two more quick
0: questions for you. Um,
2: yeah, I guess since we're wrapping up, um, what is something that you wish people or we would have asked uh, about the documentary that you haven't been asked yet or something? some final kind of comment on it that we haven't delved into?
1: Oh, wow. Okay, that's <laughs> a tricky one. <laughs> no, I think you guys are asking all the right questions I mean, you really got into the film You like the film You've you know, you, been in China for a while So you understand the social context From which this the story came about So I think you guys are asking all the right questions
0: um, Looking at the next generation of internet users If there's anything specifically that you are thinking about Teaching your own children about being good digital citizens Or having that balanced <laughs> offline life
1: <laughs> That's a tricky one. My kids are three and a half years old. They
0: start young uh, these days, I hear. <laughs> yeah, I know, I
1: know. I just want to mm-hmm. keep those away from them as long as I possibly can. Uh, it's so <laughs> scary how much, uh, you know. Especially like I know how phones can be addictive to to me. Mm-hmm. So I'm kind of worried about young kids growing up. Just uh, I also observe my nieces. How much time they spend on their phone? They are in colleges, uh, in college, and right now they just like they are on, on, on WeChat, on you know, on whatever app they are using all the time. They they don't even bother to talk to adults anymore. So that to me is a little scary. I don't know. That's going to be a big challenge for me to deal with.
2: You know, teaching your children about that is a big project. But also, from a professional perspective, I'm wondering if you would share a little bit about um, anything you're working on now.
1: Oh yeah, I'm. Launching a 40-minute short film on Netflix on May 3rd. It's about my journey to have kids through surrogacy and bringing my quote-unquote modern American family back to meet my relatives in China. It's a personal doc, documentary, and people will be able to start watching it in on Netflix in May.
0: Is that or, the all-in-my-family one?
1: Yeah, all-in-my-family.
0: Okay. Wonderful. Okay, that's great. Fantastic. Well, Hal, thank you so much for staying up and uh, chatting with us bi-nationally.
1: It's yeah, funny, it's I was fun. born
0: in, in New York City, so we're, we're kind of in each other's spaces. Yeah, we're searching
1: closely right now.
0: Too funny, too funny. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Wonderful.
2: Thanks so much for your time. Thank
1: You're you. welcome. Have a nice day.
0: Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Virtual Expats Podcast. I have so many thank yous about to come out of me. Are you ready for this? Thank you to Hao Wu, our wonderful guest and very, very talented documentarian. Also, thank you to our co-host for this episode, Shannon Martin. And you know what? I have to thank you, the listeners. It's because of you that I'm able to keep going. Episode after episode. Also, I cannot forget the wonderful Damon Castillo, who has some concerts coming up in Central Coast, California. If you live in that area, check him out at DamonCastillo.com. His link, of course, is going to be in the show notes. If you'd like to contact me for any reason, feedback, questions, or to be a guest on the show in the fall, do, 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 contact me anywhere. My handle is exactly the same at every single platform, S-T-E-P-H-F-U-C-C-I-O. Thank you very much. More soon.